According to the mystics, the absolute reality, whether you call it God or Brahman or the Tao or Allah, is inconceivable and ineffable. For example, Dionysius the Areopagite says that that one which is beyond all thought is inconceivable by all thought. The Lankavatara Sutra says that words cannot express the highest reality. Moreover, in highest reality, there are no differentiations to be discriminated, and there's nothing to be predicated regarding it. The Sufi mystic Ibn Arabi says, the Gnostics know, but what they know cannot be communicated. It is not in the power of the possessors of this most delightful station to coin a word which would denote what they know. The Hindu Upanishads say, the Spirit Supreme is immeasurable, inapprehensible, beyond conception, never born, beyond reasoning, beyond thought. And Lao Tzu sums this all up in the opening lines of the Tao Te Ching, with the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao or the true Tao. So we can't talk about this. We can't describe it. It's ineffable. The word ineffable means something that cannot be described. Now look what's happened here. We've used this word ineffable to describe it. So we've just described it with this word ineffable. But if it really is ineffable, we can't describe it. Not even with the word ineffable. So is it really ineffable? Well, if we think that it's ineffable... <laughs> right? This, so uh, this is a pointer concept. This is one of these concepts that point to the absolute. And one of the ways in which it points is by tying the mind in a little knot here. It says it's ineffable, but if your mind tries to grasp onto this, it evaporates, kind of self-destructs, just as Joel likes to say. The past self-destructs Well, these pointer concepts, if you really reflect on them, they self-destruct. And actually, a lot of the concepts that are used to point to the absolute reality are like this as well. For example, the non-dual. So the mystics, of course, also refer to the absolute reality as being non-dual or one. For example, Chuang Tzu says, the way has never known boundaries. Well, if there are no boundaries, then nothing's divided, and there's no duality, and it's non-dual. The Lankavatara Sutra, again, says, in essence, things are not two, but one. All duality is falsely imagined. The Hindu sage Shankara says, no matter what a deluded man may think he's perceiving, he's really seeing Brahman, and nothing else but Brahman. And of course, in uh, the Hindu religion, they often say that Brahman is one without a second. So, non-dual. It's this one reality, and there's no division, there's nothing else. Nothing to be divided from it, or separated from it. The Christian mystic Meister Eckhart says that 
If we see things truly, they are strangers to goodness, truth, and everything that tolerates any distinction. They are intimates of the one that is bare of any kind of multiplicity or distinction. And Rumi, the Sufi mystic, says that oneness is on the other side of descriptions and states. Nothing but duality enters speech's playing field. So they all testify that this absolute reality is non-dual or one. But of course we've used this concept of non-duality to describe this non-duality. But think about for a moment this word non-dual. Non-dual. It's saying that the non-dual is that which is not dual, right? So this is how the mind tries to understand what the non-dual means. Well, if you have non-dual here and the dual over here, well, you're, you've made a distinction between them. You said the non-dual is that which is not dual, so here's a duality. So what is the non-dual? Well, it can't be other than the dual. So what does non-dual mean if it's not the non-dual? <laughs> here again, our mind, once we reflect on this, starts to get tied in knots here. We try and grasp onto a concept that's pointing to the absolute, and it unravels. And also awareness, this other pointer concept we have. We often talk about the ultimate reality being consciousness or awareness. Well, if you take awareness to be something, you know, it's not this rock or this podium or this room, it's awareness. And you've separated it from all those things. But awareness is that which is aware of all things, and so if you have an idea of awareness as something, then you've separated it from that which is aware of that thing, right? So you start reflecting on that, and you again end up with the mind tied in a little knot here, or a big knot perhaps. And so this brings us to the topic of the talk, which is the infinite. And again, this is one of those concepts. So... Uh, first of all, uh, the mystics do describe the ultimate reality as being infinite. For example, Shankara says, I'm the Atman, eternal, ever-living, beyond action, unbounded, unattached, nothing but pure, infinite consciousness. And later he says, the illumined seers know him as the uttermost reality, Infinite, absolute, without parts. And then he gives us an instruction to meditate upon the Atman as one and infinite. So there's actually an instruction there as well. St. Augustine said in the Confessions uh, that God is like an infinite sea. And, of course, that's a metaphor you find in all the traditions. The reality is a sea, and these forms that arise are just waves on the sea, which ultimately aren't separate from the sea. The ancient Greek philosopher Anaximander uh, proposed that the basic principle of all things is the unlimited, which is another name for the infinite. 
And the Kabbalist term for the ultimate reality is Ensof, or Einsof, which literally means no end. And so if something doesn't have an end, it has no boundary and it's non-dual. And so you end up in the same kind of paradoxes with the non-dual and all these other concepts. And if you look at the word infinite, it comes from the prefix in and the root finite. And the in is a negation, and the finite comes from the Latin root finis, which is related to our word for finish. And so that's an end, or a boundary. If you're finished, you've come to your end, right? So the infinite is that which has no end. So it's totally boundless. Again. Now it's interesting, to, as long as we're on the topic of etymology, to look at the words define. If you've defined something, you've made it completely finite. You've completely bounded it, clearly demarcated the boundaries of whatever it is you're defining. So when you define something, you're clearly separating it from other things and saying exactly what it is. You set its bounds. And so the D is a prefix. Sometimes it means uh, it's kind of a negation or an undoing. In this case, it's a completion. So it's a completely finite, completely bound, defined. So to define is the opposite of infinite. Something's definite. It's not infinite. Now, if we define infinite as that which is not finite, then we're again in a paradox, right? Because we have defined the infinite. (laughs) So again, we've contradicted ourselves, and the infinite has just unraveled, or at least the concept of the infinite has unraveled in any case. We might paraphrase uh, Lao Tzu and say the, the infinite that can be definite is not the true infinite. so generally we have this common pattern with all of these pointer concepts we start to reflect on them and they unravel themselves if we don't reflect on them we can think that we've understood what it is we can think oh I've defined the non-dual and I know what the non-dual is and I have this nice little uh, concept and I've wrapped it up in a package But once you reflect on that, you see, well, wait a minute. If I've defined it, then it's not non-dual. I've created a duality. And the same with all these other concepts. Okay, so if infinite is not describable, and what's the point of you trying to tell us? (laughs) All you're saying is not true and not describable. You can have your money back. But see, like, I'm, I'm like lost in that crack that I'm probably going to be stuck for a while because I'm trying to understand what you're saying, but you're just saying, well, this is not, this is infinite, and I can't describe it. If I can describe it, it's not true, like the Tao. Okay, so what are you... So what's the point? <laughs> right, so, so the point is uh, <laughs> if this discussion can lead the mind to recognize the pointlessness of 
the mind trying to grasp on to this point or that point or whatever. There's the possibility that a non-conceptual realization can occur. And if you try to think about that, well, good luck. Just a pointing. Right. Remember, I promised you it'd be interesting. There's enormous enlightenment for the humanity. And by the way, as long as uh, the term enlightenment is mentioned, you know, this is another one of the paradoxes. Is that well, if you think of enlightenment as something out there that's separate from you, or in time, or in experience, you know, that enlightenment is some experience other than this, or it's something that will happen, something separate from now, in the future, or something. There's a distinction that's created in the mind about what that is and how it's separate from what is now. Whatever now is, this imaginary point that we've distinguished as well. So, the point is for the mind to unravel. And then something might happen, in quotes. So hopefully that didn't make any sense at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm curious what you mean when you say they unravel themselves. Well, when you, I guess what I'm uh, trying to indicate by that is you arrive at a contradiction. So if you think that one of these words has a definite meaning, you reflect on that and you see that, well, it's a contradiction. For example, with the ineffable, we found that, well, the describing reality as ineffable can't actually be accurate. Because if it is ineffable, you can't even use the word ineffable for it. And so the mind kind of stops and says, well, this is meaningless then, right? So the, I guess what unravels is the sense that this word is some self-contained, finite package of meaning that you can grasp onto. And so you might say it self-liberates. That might be another way to describe it. That this contradiction, you thought that it was something you could grasp onto, but then you arrive at this contradiction, and you say, well, wait a minute, uh, there's this contradiction here, and it can help the mind to let that go and release and open up to something perhaps non-conceptual. Does it change like a cone in a sense? Right. So this is the this is the spiritual value of this kind of exercise, which you might classify as more of a Janani exercise, to really contemplate these pointer concepts and see that in fact if you rigorously think about them and try and think about them in a consistent way, you end up at a contradiction. And so the mind, through its very own process, comes to an end, which is part of what a cone is designed to do. You start with some weird statement like, what is move, or something like that, right? And the mind can't make sense of this. And the cone is designed to do that. It's designed to be something that the mind tries to figure out, but can't. And so it's setting you up for failure, in a sense. And so all of these concepts, if you reflect on them, they will undo the mind in a similar way. And so this can serve as a kind of uh, spiritual exercise 
just as uh, Shankara said in a quote from a moment ago, he said, meditate on the infinite. Well, if you if you can't meditate on the non-conceptual infinite, meditate on the conceptual infinite and see that it runs into this contradiction and that might release you from the concept and open you up perhaps to something non-conceptual. So, let's just try this for a moment. You might um, just sit again and relax for a moment, just informally. This doesn't, we won't re- use the gong here or anything, but sit, just sit and relax for a moment. You might want to close your eyes and just settle the mind. Take a breath. Now bring to mind the concept of a rock. And note that the meaning of that concept is different from, say, the meaning of a shoe. I'll just let that dissolve. Now bring to mind the idea of the number 100. Note that that idea is different from, say, the number 7. Let that go. Now think of the infinite. yourself, is this idea of the infinite separate from, say, the idea of a rock or the number 100? If it is, then you've defined it and separated it, and it's not the true infinite. So let that go. Now bring to mind the infinite again. Just be aware of the activity of the mind when you bring to mind, you imagine this concept of the infinite. The mind is doing something. Is that activity separating Creating a concept separate from other ideas, from other aspects of awareness. If it is, it's just created something that isn't infinite. So let that go. And just rest in what is before that activity of the mind. Now you might notice your mind searching for that. If you find something, you've distinguished it. 
So let that go. So that's the kind of little Janani exercise you can do to investigate some of these concepts. And you can repeat that and repeat that. And it might help reveal how the mind has these inherent limitations when it tries to grasp onto things conceptually. And as that's repeated over and over and over, it may help relax the mind and open it to what is non-conceptual. Now that, admittedly, is jumping all the way uh, from wherever you happen to be into the ultimate infinite. There's also another approach you can take to all of this, which is to what you might say approach it more gradually. Now in mathematics, there are actually conceptions of the infinite that aren't absolutely infinite. These are what you might call uh, consistent or uh, conceptual forms of infinity that are mathematical. Now, although they're, they're not paradoxical in the way that the ultimately infinite is paradoxical, they still um, help suggest some of these paradoxical qualities, and they can still provide you with pointer concepts. And in a sense, you can think of it as allowing, giving the mind kind of a ladder to ascend to the infinite side. So let's just illustrate this by going through some various kinds of infinity you could conceive of. And we'll get more and more subtle until we again arrive back and come full circle at the absolute infinite. So we can start with the physical infinite. So for example, you might remember as a kid looking up at the stars and wondering if there's an end to space. If you just flew off in a spaceship and went on and on and on, would you eventually come up against a wall? Well, let's say you did. Well, if there's a wall somewhere out there, well, there must be something on the other side of that wall, right? And so it's not really the end of space. There must, there's a wall there, and so there's, by definition, something on the other side. Even if it's you know nothing or something like that, there's still a boundary there separating one thing from another. Space from, say, that. It's not space. So that's a kind of infinity that you can imagine. So this is a kind of infinity in physical space, uh, but it's not an absolute infinity because if we have space being uh, two-dimensional, we can say, well, it may be infinitely extended in two dimensions, but limited in the sense that you can't move into the third dimension. So we could say, well, let's add a third dimension. And now you can move infinitely in any direction in three dimensions, but still you're limited by the number three here. Well, you can go to four, you can go to five. Is there any limit to the number of dimensions that are possible? Well, and this is where it starts becoming hard for the mind to grasp. You know, it's easy to visualize two-dimensional space and three-dimensional space, but you start to get to four, five, six, seven. That's a little bit more challenging. Now imagine an infinite dimensional space. So this is this gives you a sense of how these concepts uh, can become more and more abstract or subtle or refined, and in a sense bring you to the edge 
of conceivability to where you might be able to then leap off. And so the, the catch here is that you don't want to get stuck at any point uh, imagining that somehow, oh, now I finally grasped the infinite. Because there's always something beyond it as long as you've grasped it. Okay. There's a famous paradox that the Greek philosopher Zeno came up with that has to do with the infinity of space. So if you imagine two points separated from each other, how many points are there in between those two? Well, uh, it would seem like there's an infinite number of points. You can divide that in two, and you can divide it in two again, and any interval of those two separate points you have, you can always find another point in between them. And there's no end to how much you can do that, as long as, no matter how close they are together, two little points very, very close together, as long as they're separate, you can always find a point between them. And so the thought was, well, there's an infinite number of points separating any two points. Well, if that's true, there's a paradox, uh, which is sometimes called the paradox of the arrow. So we imagine shooting an arrow towards a target. And let's just, for the sake of uh, the argument, say that this is, say, one yard away, or one mile away, or one unit away of distance. So the arrow leaves, and the first, before it gets to the target, it has to go halfway, right? So we can say it went halfway first. So now it's halfway. Well, now before it gets to the target, it has to go half of that distance, right? So it has to go one half plus one half of that, which is one quarter. Right? So that's three quarters of the way. And then once it's there, it has to go half of the remaining distance, which is one half plus one quarter plus one eighth. So you're seven eighths of the distance. But before it gets to the target, it has to go half of that distance. And then before it gets to the target, it has to go half of the remaining distance left. And no matter how many times you do this, there will be a remaining distance that hasn't gone. And it always has to go at least half of that distance before it gets to the target. So this is a never-ending process. So his argument was, well, it, it never gets to the target, because it always has to go halfway, and it can never quite get there to the end. So what does the mind do with this? <laughs> you know, people have talked about this for centuries and come up with different solutions and so on and so forth, and some people say calculus has solved it, and other people say it hasn't. It comes down to the, the mysterious, really, nature of what's called the continuum. Can you really break up space infinitely or not? What is the nature of this this idea of sort of a continuous space? Can it really be conceived at all? So that's Zeno's paradox. And there are other similar paradoxes that people have come up with. There's uh, a medieval uh, theologian, John Duns Scotus, who was considering... Uh, whether there's an infinite number of points on a circle. 
So we have two concentric circles. They're different sizes, and they share the same center. And you might think, since the outer circle is bigger than the inner circle, that in some sense it has more points. It's longer. It has a longer circumference than the inner circle. So it should have more points. On the other hand, if you draw a line through the center, outward, a radial line, it intersects each circle in exactly one point. And no matter which direction you go out from the center, it always intersects the inner circle and the outer circle at exactly one point. So we can match all of these points in what's called a one-to-one correspondence between the inner circle and the outer circle. So we arrive at this kind of paradox that even though the outer circle is longer and you might think it should have, in some sense, more points, in fact, you can show through this one-to-one correspondence that the points are matched up one-to-one. Like, when you do a diagram like that, you see the points, or mm-hmm. you can make a point. But if you were to describe it in a physics way like you, the mm-hmm. expert at doing, it would be mathematical numbers, or x equals, or whatever. I promise not to write too many equations here. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, if, uh, if you were to formulate a model, uh, uh, let's say a merry-go-round, you were going to study the physics of a merry-go-round, you would represent that as a circle. And you could have different, uh, you know, an inner circle of the merry-go-round and an outer circle, or if, or even a model of the, of the solar system. Before it was discovered that the planets orbited in ellipses, uh, the model for the solar system was that these were perfect circles. And so they were modeled as mathematical, pure geometrical circles. And so our way of understanding the physical world uses these pure mathematical notions. In this case, we're also comparing or what we're quantifying is nothing, right? Because each of these points really is nothing, right? There's no actual point, right? If you look down deeper and deeper and deeper, there's no point where you start comparing quantities of nothing, right? Yeah, you could say, well, what is a point? Uh, now, can you ever find that point? It has no length, it has no width, it has no breadth. What is it? You know, on the one hand, we have this point here. Uh, We may not be able to say how big it is or how long it is, but in some sense, we know it's different from this other point over here. They're two different points. We've distinguished them by their different locations in space. And so in a certain sense, you might say the point is a nothing that is distinguished by virtue of a different location. But, but I think the, the, the important thing to remember is that that's exactly what we do with the real world, or the quote-unquote real world. And that mathematics is just kind of a, you know, kind of a distillation of what we use our mind to do all the time, and then to look at what the mind does, kind of in one sense. Right. And so these objections and kind of like, well, this is just mathematical, in the real world, an orange, you know, but the point is that it's the same thing. Good point. <laughs> so points have qualities as well. It's a good point in that. <laughs> Indeed. I'm glad you pointed that out. 
So let's talk some more about some of these paradoxes of, uh, of the mathematically infinite. We started out with a physical infinite, and we got into some geometrical infinities. Now, just as you can think about, well, what's the, is there a boundary or an end to space out there? You can also think, well, is there a, a biggest number? You might have thought this when you were a kid. You know, what's, there, what's the biggest number? You know, is a million the biggest number? Well, of course, as we all know, if, if anyone gives you a number and says, well, this is the biggest number, you can always just add one to it. Or better yet, double it. <laughs> or square it for that matter uh, so the fact that we can always kind of outdo anyone's claim that they've found the biggest number is uh, a proof you might say that there is no biggest number you can never find the last number when you're counting you never get to an end it's infinite in that sense and this is, uh, you might say, a kind of mathematical metaphor to the spiritual path. So we go along and we take this step, and we take that step, and we've made progress, and we've come from here to there, and we're going along this path, we're adding one, we're adding two, we're adding three, we're, we get to a hundred, you know, we think we're really progressing. But will we ever get there? No. There's a, there's a quote by Dr. Wolf. Awakening cannot be a matter of gradual attainment, for the infinite is never realized by progressive additions of the finite. There's no question of development on this level in the sense of progression by finite steps. Now, to get back to this idea of the size of the infinite, there are actually some interesting uh, paradoxes our, our usual idea of how big something is really only applies to things that are finite. You, know, you have three, and it's smaller than seven, because uh, you can measure that in some sense. But when you have infinity, how do you measure the size of infinity? Uh, how big is that? Now, as, you, as we saw with these circles, in a certain sense, you can compare these two infinities. You can match them up one to one. You can't really say how big it is, but you can say that in some sense they're the same size. They're both infinite, and the infinity is the same size as infinity. Now, if you take, uh, let's say, all of the all of the numbers, one, two, three, four, five, six, on and on and on, you take that whole set of numbers, that in infinite set, you might say, has a certain size. Now let's take the, a subset of that. Let's just take out all the even numbers. 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12. So we've taken out half the numbers. Well, you might think it's half as big, right? Well, just like those two concentric circles, we can match them up one to one. You take one, and you match it up with two. You take two, and you match it up with four. You take three, and you match it up with six. This is just like those two concentric circles. You're matching up each point on the inner circle with each point on the outer circle. In a certain sense, 
you might say that even numbers are smaller. It's a smaller size set than all the numbers. But on the other hand, you can match them up one to one. And so even though you've taken a subset of infinity, it still has the same size as the whole. <laughs> so there's a, there's a funny story about this that, that illustrates it. There's a mathematician named Hilbert, and he imagined this hotel. And this is kind of a unique hotel because it has an infinite number of rooms. And it's a great moneymaker because even if your hotel is full, there's always room for more. <laughs> and, and here's how he, he figured it. Well, let's say your hotel is full. Every room has got an infinite number of rooms, and each one has an occupant. So someone shows up at the reception desk. He says, well, I, I see you have no vacancy on your sign out there, but I really need a room. And so the, the clever person at the desk there says, well, I think I can make room. And so it is a bit of an inconvenience to all the current guests, but here's what he does. He tells everyone in each room to move to the next room. So person in room one rooms, moves over to room two. Person in room two moves to room three. Person in room three moves to room four, and so on. The person in room 100 moves to room 101. person in room a million moves to room a million and one. So they all shift over, and room one is empty. He says, go ahead, move into room one. How long would that take? <laughs> we gotta go somewhere else. <laughs> the the idea is that even though it's full of an infinite number of people, that just as a subset is just as infinite as the full set, you can take the infinite people and shift them over and suddenly you have space. In fact, this hotel is so remarkable that it, you could even make room for 100 people to show up, right? You just repeat this process. You, you don't even have to repeat it. You just tell person in room 1 to move to room 101. Person in room 2, move to room 102. Person in room 3, move to 103. Person in room a million, move to room a million... 100, 100. <laughs> and so on. And then suddenly you have 100 empty rooms and you move in your 100 people. You could even move in a million people. In fact, you can move in an infinite number of people. You tell a person in room one to move to room two. You tell a person in room two to move to room four. person in room three moves to six. person in room four moves to eight. Suddenly, all the odd rooms are empty. How many odd rooms are there? Infinite number of odd rooms. So you pull in another infinite number of people. You can repeat this process as well. Now all these infinities we've been discussing, the number of rooms, the number of people we bring into the rooms, and all of this, thats all those infinities are in a certain sense the same size. This mathematician named Cantor actually proved that there's an infinity bigger than this infinity. <laughs> so there's an infinity that's of a higher order than the infinity of the, the number of what are called natural numbers. This is what's sometimes called a countable infinity, because it has to do with counting. And the, the number of 
points on a real line is called an uncountable infinity. You can't enumerate it. You can't count it. Some bigger infinity in a certain sense. Well, these don't have any necessary use. It's just to prove that there is infinities above infinities above infinities. Because that wouldn't be useful to anything, would it? Except to prove that. <laughs> well, you'd be surprised what mathematicians can make use of. Uh, I think the take-home message here is that this is a, an illustration of this, this principle, that even with infinity, with a, this is a mathematical infinity, by the way, and the fact that you can do this means that it isn't the absolute infinity. No matter what infinity you can conceive of, in some sense, no matter how big it is, you've conceived of it, and you've put some kind of limit on it, and you can always go beyond that. And so this is an example of that. You, we might have thought that this, that this infinite number of numbers was absolutely infinite, but in fact it's not. There's an infinity bigger than that. And of course there's even an infinity bigger than the second infinity. But I won't get into that. You can, you can read about that in uh, other books if you're interested. So there's another illustration of this idea of approaching infinity from the finite a mystic in the uh, Christian tradition named Nicholas of Cusa, who was a cardinal, and he had this to say. It's self-evident that there's no comparative relation of the infinite to the finite. Therefore, it's not the case that by means of likeness, a finite intellect can precisely attain the truth about things. For truth is not something more or something less, but is something indivisible. Whatever is not truth cannot measure truth precisely. For the intellect is to truth as an inscribed polygon is to the inscribing circle. That makes it perfectly clear. <laughs> so let me uh, show you what he's talking about there with the inscribing circle and the inscribed polygon. So, so a polygon is, is, a, is a geometrical shape in two dimensions with uh, a number of sides on it. For example, a square is a polygon, a, uh, a triangle is a polygon. So if we draw a triangle, we can draw a circle around that that inscribes the triangle. And then, okay, so there I did the triangle example. So we can inscribe the circle in a square. And let's see, what's next up from the square? We have a pentagon, right? So you can inscribe the circle in the pentagon. And then, let's see, next you have a hexagon. So we have six sides here. Now, as you can see, what happens as the number of sides to the polygon increases, is that the polygon gets closer and closer to being a circle. But it will never be a circle, as long as it's a polygon. It will have a finite number of sides, and they'll all be straight. So what he was hinting at here was something similar to Zeno's arrow. You know, it's flying towards the target, but it will never quite get there. Similarly, these polygons, as you increase the number of sides, they get closer and closer to this ideal circle, but they never quite get there. 
And so this is what Nicholas of Cusa was saying with, uh, with this last part of the quote. Whatever is not truth, and in his metaphor here, he's using the polygon to be our conceptual approximation to truth, cannot measure truth precisely. So you might say you're trying to measure the circumference of the circle with the sides of the polygon. The larger you make the number of sides, the more closely the perimeter of the polygon will equal the circumference of the circle. But it will never be exact. For the intellect is to truth as the inscribed polygon is to the circle. So the intellect can get closer and closer to truth, but it never quite gets there. Well, earlier you said something about, you know, there not being really any any getting closer to truth, you know, in the sense of progress. Right, so you can say, uh, you know, this is why it's often said, you know, from a relative point of view, there's progress on the spiritual path and all of this, but uh, from the ultimate point of view, we were there to begin with. And is there any value in that relative, more harmony? Like a closer and closer approximation to the truth. Yeah. The value, I think, uh, or at least one of the values can be that each step you take, you know, you learn over again that what you thought previously was kind of the end or something great or, oh, you know, I realize this isn't that great. Uh, well, yeah, but there's more. There's always more, there's always more, there's always more. And then it comes to a point where that very process itself has to be transcended. Where even thinking that, well, what's the next thing is already too much. So, so we can't actually ascend to the infinite. What has to be realized is this whole process of ascending to the infinite is mistaken. But you can ascend to the point where you know you can't do it. I mean, where... Right. So this see that it's not a doable thing. Right. So that's the, the, the spiritual value of some of these exercises of contemplating these paradoxical pointer concepts that they can or the koans, to bring the mind to that point where it gives up. So, you might say, mathematically, rather than uh, trying to count up to infinity, you could say, well, let's instead consider the infinity to be what's present prior to counting. So, you might say, you know, before we even try to become enlightened, you know, enlightenment is already here. And so if that can be realized, the mathematical analogy would be, well, before we even count to one, infinity is already there. And in fact, you can, you can start to reformulate all of mathematics this way. There's a book called Laws of Form, which develops uh, not counting, but uh, logic from the bare idea of making a distinction. And so you start, in a certain sense, with nothing, which is mystically identical with everything, and you create a distinction. And so symbolically, kind of crudely, we can represent this bare nothing as the blank page and drawing a distinction by drawing a circle in that page. 
Now, nothing's been created here. We've only imagined a distinction. And so, what's inside the circle? Well, nothing. What's outside the circle? Well, nothing. Is the circle anything? Well, yes and no. Something was imagined. And then we can imagine another circle. And another circle. And so, we're counting. One, two, three. Multiplicity arises out of nothing. And we can think of this as nothing, but we can also think of this as prior to any distinction, it was boundless, it was infinite, it was without distinction. So, if we try to get to the page by drawing more circles, isn't that kind of silly? (laughs) We've always been on the page. Uh, There's no way to get off of the page. Uh, And here we are trying to get to the page by drawing more and more circles. Now, it could be that by drawing those circles, somehow we realize we're on the page. And that drawing those circles might help us realize we're on the page when they kind of undo themselves in this way that these concepts undo themselves. And so that's kind of how this might work and might be beneficial. So to kind of wrap this up, I'd like to share with you this quote from Shankara. That which is presupposed by the power to imagine, that from which imagination proceeds, that cannot itself be imagined. Whatever you see as duality is unreal, but the self is not seen and therefore cannot be dismissed as non-existent. That from which all imaginations, such as real and unreal, proceed, together with the power to think and reflect, is itself non-dual and in the highest sense real. So are there any more questions? Where does the heart fit into all this? Love is also one of these concepts that if you if you contemplate what it means the ultimate divine love that is all-embracing. It has to be infinite. It is the infinite. Because if, if, uh, if love is excluding or pushing away uh, or denying anything, it's not open, unconditional love. It's making conditions. It's drawing boundaries. It's rejecting this. It's pushing away that. And so love is the infinite, unbounded, all-embracing Reality. I've been using these kind of more philosophical terms to talk about ultimate reality, but really the love is just another name for the same thing. So, uh, admittedly, these kinds of uh, more intellectual practices are ways, they're, they're focused more on, on the mind and undoing the blockages that the mind creates. Now, there are also more emotional kind of blockages that are, of course, linked to thoughts as well, because the thoughts and emotions are intertwined. So, whenever there's uh, an emotional reaction to something, inevitably you'll find there's, there's a thought associated with that as well. And so, the similar analysis can be used to actually work with emotions as well. So, well, if... 
if there's an emotional uh, barrier or rejection of this emotion or aversion, let's put it that way, let's say there's an emotional reaction, there's an aversion to that experience, well, that's creating a division in our experience. And the mind is involved in doing that, or, or the imagination, let's say, more fundamental than just conceptual thought. We're imagining, presupposing some separation between us and that, as if we could get away from it. You know? uh, here's this experience, and then somehow I don't like it, you know? And so presupposed by that aversion is this idea that I'm separate from that. And I can resist that. And so love opening up to that is uh, an acknowledgement that that's a division. And it's separating the whole reality that is non-dual. Does that help? You know, it's something to investigate. Is you know, we we contemplated these pointer concepts such as love and awareness and the non-dual and the ineffable, and we see that they unravel themselves or uh, self-liberate and open up to something beyond them. And it's a question whether that's just true for these weird concepts that mystics use, or if it's actually true for everything, for for the chair and the rock and the plant. You know, are these things, in some sense, actually self-contained and bounded? Uh, does it, if we really reflect on it, does it make sense to think of things in that way? And if you're interested in following up on that, uh, there's very rigorous analysis of phenomena that's done, for example, in the Madhyamaka school of Mahayana Buddhism, where they essentially deconstruct anything that you could imagine to exist. Any object can be shown to not have a kind of self-existent boundary, self-contained. No real boundary can actually be defined. And through logic, you can actually deconstruct the boundary of anything. And they have a very rigorous way of going through and doing that. And if you've seen the Tibetans, you know, in their debates, they, uh, you might have seen photos of the Tibetans and one will be debating they slap their hands when they make a point. And one of the things they will debate is, you know, does the, does the fire exist separate from the fuel? And things like this. And they'll go through this analysis and they'll show that you can't actually hold on to any of these distinctions. Whether it be your plant or fire or fuel or the chair or the rock or anything. So, it's easy to see with these uh, paradoxical pointer concepts, but you can actually deconstruct anything in the mind, and this helps loosen the mind up from grasping on things. And then the mind is more free and open and embracing. Yeah, and so that's the whole point of their practice, is to, is to free the mind from its conditioned attachment to these concepts as if they're real. It's not that you want to stop all thinking. You just want to see the thinking for what it is. It's creating these boundaries, but boundaries are useful, but they're not ultimately real. Yeah. That's what sitting here and listening to you all day has been, I mean, I was going to ask you, that means that nothing's finite. Just listening to you, that means that nothing finite is real. Nothing. 
Thanks. Thank you. 